And we have more breaking news. The Kansas City Chiefs have lost Spencer Ware potentially for the season. Unlike the Julian Edelman injury where we're speculating based on what we saw on the replay, Spencer Ware, he's being taken off the field on a cart, and it's never a good sign when you're taken off the field on the trainer's cart on August 25th. We know Spencer Ware is going to miss time. I mean, maybe not. Maybe there's a miracle, but I doubt it. Spencer Ware is going to miss games. That means it's the Kareem Hunt show in Kansas City. Does this make Kareem Hunt the number one running back in this class for 2017? No. 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 Not that high. I'm just going to the extreme. I'm testing the waters here because fantasy gamers love to go out to best case scenario, particularly when they like the coach. And a lot of fantasy gamers love to tout Andy Reid's genius. He loves to funnel targets through the running back because the quarterback is Alex Smith, and that's just logical. Given the fact the quarterback is Alex Smith, and Andy Reid has a history of funneling touches through the running back, what is Kareem Hunt's value this season and beyond, Kevin? So this season, I think you can see him, you you might be able to see him jump someone like Cook, who, you know, know, I've heard this a couple places where it's not like that I like Latavius Murray, but I think... Vikings will like him enough to limit Cook's production and muddy it up. Same thing with Mixon. I think Hill, as much as we don't like him as a fantasy community, and clearly he's not a quote-unquote good running back. No one likes Jeremy Hill. Excuse me. Christopher Harris likes Jeremy Hill still. Christopher Harris still thinks Jeremy Hill is good. (laughs) Shots fired. So I I think that you could see him kind of maybe creep up above those guys for this year. But in Dynasty, where I would settle out is probably, I think he— becomes he was always in that five to eight nine ish rb range you know in that mix with foreman camara those kind of guys who whoever you like amongst those guys i think he could probably usurp camara as the top running back beyond the big four so you know i think fournette mixon cook mccaffrey i think those four guys are solidified in the top four dynasty rookie running backs if you will but i think that fifth guy i think hunt becomes in the conversation because the chiefs reed won't look back you know if hunt does well spencer Ware is the next west jamal charles he'll run through them he don't really care he's not going to keep loyalty to Ware, even coming back next year you know so i could totally see hunt just running with that role um, so he, I think five is probably his ceiling in terms of dynasty this year, but he could probably creep up into top three, four. I think you make a great point. I think that Kareem Hunt could be the leading scorer among rookie running backs this season, this season, but his projected lifetime value has to be lower than Fournette, than Dalvin Cook, than Joe Mixon, than Christian McCaffrey because of the draft capital investment made by the respective teams. At the end of the day, Kareem Hunt was a late third round pick. And those running backs are generally expendable. And we know what's coming in the 2018 class. We've talked about it on the show multiple times. The running backs that are coming. If Spencer Ware is lost for the season and the Kansas City Chiefs are thin at running back this year, look for them to draft a running back next year who has a better talent profile than Kareem Hunt. So that's the danger in running out to best case scenario on Kareem Hunt and paying a first round pick plus to acquire him this year, it could be a one-year rental. He could then slide back into a satellite back role next year, a la Jarek McKinnon 
from 2016 to 2017. That's why as soon as the word that Spencer Ware is indefinitely out for the year, that's when you're selling Kareem Hunt. Just like you said, I mean, imagine if a guy like Kalen Balash falls next year to the late second round and the Kansas City Chiefs are sitting there looking at their depth. Spencer Ware's coming off of an ACL. Kareem Hunt has a good, bad. We don't know what kind of year he's even going to have. We know opportunity will be there. Then a guy like that with this incredible talent profile is sitting there. Why wouldn't they do it? This is a team that's always lean heavily to feature a running back and a guy like Balage or someone of that nature would be a great fit so I can't believe we're doing this right now all these people out there that own Kareem Hunt are celebrating in the streets and we're talking about how the Kansas City Chiefs are going to draft a running back next year the first two rounds and relegate Kareem Hunt to pass catching duties (laughs) that's that's what happens right let's go let's go over the list real quick let's go over the list What if I told you that a non-Power 5 conference rookie running back drafted in the third round that's actually less athletic than Spencer Ware? He is less athletic. He runs a 4.62 at 215 pounds. That's a sub-50th percentile speed score, and his agility score is even worse. 1175 13th percentile. He has a 102.7 19th percentile Spark X score. This is a non athlete who is not particularly productive at the college level. He was at Toledo and he couldn't exceed a 30% dominator rating at Toledo. I don't get the fascination with Kareem Hunt. I never have. I know he's a great satellite back. The 10.4% college target share tells you this. Over 40 receptions last season. That's very impressive for a pass catcher to be the next Theo Riddick. That's fine if that's what you think Kareem Hunt's optimal role is for an NFL team. That's all good. That's all fine. But you will see him be traded for a price that is the equivalent of an elite young running back. It's going to happen. I'm telling you this already. Spoiler alert. That's going to happen. You will start to see the ridiculous trades involving Kareem Hunt start to roll in tonight. It will happen tonight will be the kickoff of ridiculous Kareem Hunt trade season. All right, Kevin, question. 2018 draft. You're holding Kareem Hunt right now. What pick are you selling Kareem Hunt for? Are you selling for the 110? No. No. What? No. No. Yeah, are, you, are you selling for 106? No. Take the production, bro. If he's going to get burned eventually, he's not the long-term answer. That's a fact. It doesn't matter. He's not- All he needs to do is perform well for the first five weeks. He helps your fantasy team make the playoffs, and then you can trade him. So here's where I really, uh, you know, in Dynasty, this is where I, I really make my money. And I, I think the ideal case is you take somebody like Hunt, you package maybe your future first, and you actually go up. I have this thing where you say, I say ponies for horses, not horses for ponies. So what I take is I take Hunt, who I view as a pony, who's probably a middling first round running back and and capitalize on that value. And I take him and my future first and then I upgrade to Brandon Cooks. That's how you do it, Nate. That's how you do it. On these Dynasty podcasts, people love to just talk about players in terms of their what first round picks would you trade for them? Like that's a currency. Future first rounders are a currency, and that's the way we can define player value. But it's irrelevant because I don't do trades like that. I don't trade a player straight up for picks and lose the production for 2017, a season in which I'm trying to win in every single dynasty league. If I had to trade Kareem Hunt for picks, I would wait until the season was over to do it. 
But what Kevin is saying is the ideal strategy. You let him have a couple good games, and then you trade him for a running back you like, a wide receiver you like, and picks. So a treasure trove of assets where you force your opponent to overpay, or you package players and picks with Kareem Hunt and go up and get a Brandon Cooks. That's how you play it. I wouldn't I be think- shocked to see people do Hunt in a second for Freeman. I, I mean, I think that's the kind of, you're going to see those kind of deals happen. Yes. 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 You're gonna, absolutely going to see people leverage it because what's going to happen now is the, the narrative of Reed's running backs, the the scenario that's forming for Hunt without wear is going to be built up to this godly figure that this is just an unreal potential for Hunt to be built into. And he might even have a productive 2017. But to me, I'm just not that, you know, between his profile and and the kind of running back he is, and not to say he can't be good. It's just that I think that if you're valuing Hunt at a mid-first value, I think that all he can do is hit that value. He's not going to be, a like I was just discussing, I don't think he'll be a top four or top three or even top two running rookie running back in this class he's not going to get you to that next level i'd rather pay on a second round rookie level pick for that and then see someone go up you don't want to wait though and find out that he plays like shit for the first three weeks of the season if his value is going to spike if right now someone in your league looks at him like he's worth a 103 type value i'm not saying trading for rookie picks but if they look at him now like damn i would have taken him at 105 or whatever and now he's more valuable than he's ever been right now without seeing him play a real down i'm selling him before he plays because all he can do is hurt you what do you think of this package willie sneed duke johnson and a 2017 second rounder for kareem hunt i wouldn't do it i mean i think guys like sneed you can find every year i think he's a pony what if I make it Stefan Diggs? Would you do it? Yeah, then I think you're getting a little bit more where you're trying to get a higher caliber wide receiver. Keenan Allen? I mean, I could drop it on you guys, but you might, you know, I might not make it through the rest of the show. But Keenan Allen's a top five receiver for me in Dynasty. And we were early on Saquon Barkley and Darius Geis. Darius Geis has 14 receptions in his career, and that's the difference between Geis and Saquon Barkley. Without looking at the athleticism, you go with Barkley as the better receiver, but you have Geis as your number two back, right? That's a fact. Yeah, and Darius Geis is actually just a little bit smaller. He's 5'11", 215, 212, so we're talking about 10 pounds difference. Who knows what he'll be like when he shows up to the combine. But like we said with Christian McCaffrey, we wish Christian McCaffrey had 5, 10 more pounds. So when you look at Geis, you look at Barkley, Barkley's 10 pounds heavier. But again, Darius Geis, elite athlete, very instinctual runner. So how do we know he's an elite athlete? Because I get this question on Twitter. We thought the 2017 class was going to be athletic, and it wasn't Fantasy Mansion. How do you know the 2018 class is going to be athletic? And my face turns red, and I scream at the computer. I never said the 2017 class was athletic! (laughs) Well, I'll tell you how you know. 
previously, a lot of teams didn't release information when they do their end of the year testing or beginning of the year testing. And a lot of these guys, if you dig deep enough, you've got beat writers and, and writers at collegiate schools that are putting information out there. And all these guys I've found information on or found in the past that you can quantify things with. And a lot of it was laser timed and a lot of it was hand timed. But even if they're hand timing a guy at 4-3, he's a sure shot to run right around a 4-4 flat, right? So either way, they get numerous people that are testing them out. But let's talk about Darius Geis for a second. Well, that's important. We have a better window into the athleticism on these players than we ever have before. We knew Dalvin Cook wasn't going to test well a year ago. We know that Saquon Barkley is incredibly explosive. I can tell you that right now. It's a fact. We'll see it play out at the NFL Scouting Combine next March. But I'm telling it to you now because I want you to have tomorrow's newspaper. Mm. Darius Geis is freaky. I mean, he he did even better in terms of production when you look at the conference he's playing in versus the Big Ten where Saquon Barkley's playing in. Not that the Big Ten's bad, but we talk about the SEC defenses all the time. This is the conference that you want the guys with the highly productive backgrounds to come from. This is where some of your top defensive ends come from, linebackers. So they're facing a week in and week out. But with Darius Geis, one thing that we would love to see more of is the receptions on his profile. Only 14 receptions over 23 games since he's been at LSU. The one thing that we know about Geis, though, as far as his receiving ability is that when we've seen him in game, he looks good. And there's a lot of film now that we're in this sort of this era, this social media era. There's a lot of film of him working out split out wide, running drills, running routes. He looks good as a receiver. So I'm honestly not as concerned with Geis because I've seen it where you still want that production. We still want that statistical production validated in the games. Oh, 7.8 yards per carry for his career against SEC competition primarily. I mean, what? How? I have that actual stat. Geis versus SEC competition alone. This is with no other conferences mixed in. 7.7 yards per carry, 929 (laughs) rush yards, and 11 touchdowns. And he's averaging 17.5 yards per reception versus SEC competition. I don't understand. He's so good. He's so good. I mean, we can't assume that Saquon Barkley is going to be the first running back drafted. Oh, this is going to be great. I'm already excited. Just the potential presence of these two running backs in next year's draft requires you to be very, very careful about trading future 2018 first-round picks. If you're not getting a treasure chest of assets, don't do it. Don't do it. Just wait. You can do it. Just don't do it now. Yeah, the the top of this class is going to be good, and we've got three more running backs to talk about that are... It's just incredible what this class is going to offer. But on Geis' athleticism, which we haven't quite gotten to yet, if you watch him on film, freaky athlete. I mean, explosive. One of the quickest short area guys that's probably going to be in the top of this class. Last year, at the end of LSU's camp, he ran the 40. He was timed at a 4-3-2. So, (laughs) what? No. So that's slightly faster than what Saquon Barkley did, but he's 10 pounds lighter. But here's what's really, really impressive, right? If you thought Barkley's five reps of 525 on squat was good, there is a video. I challenge you to find this this video and look at it. Darius Geis 
one rep max, 650 pound squat all the way down and back up. It's incredible. The power that this guy has no spotters. It's unbelievable. Wow. So, I mean, just these two guys right at the top, freaky athletes. There are two Adrian Petersons in next year's draft class, and we haven't even got to Nick Chubb yet. And Fusu Vu may believe that Derrick Henry's better than all of them. You're starting a franchise today. Derrick Henry, Leonard Fournette. Who you got? Uh, I'm going with Henry. Henry. Henry's been my guy. Henry has burst. All else being equal, I'd rather have the guy that has great burst. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's got much better movement skill as well. I mean, I think a lot. A lot of people said he was stiff, but I think. Um, I think he's got pretty good hips, pretty good feet, and his receiving production wasn't. He didn't have great volume, but he was. He was pretty explosive on, on his his few chances, and yeah, yeah. I think he was underused. In college, I think I mean as a rookie, he was pretty he was pretty good on his reception. He made some guys miss in the open field. He was, he showed shiftiness. I think he's more definitely a lot more dynamic than Fournette. I mean, he just he's just a much better athlete overall. Bird, yeah, the bird, the broad, and his speeds his speeds not that bad. It's pretty good. They had the same speed score as well. I think it was uh, one sixteen speed score. That's right. If you took the exercise we were doing before where we were tackling a player or dying. <laughs> if we added Derrick Henry to that exercise, my new rankings would be tackle Fournette first, then Pirine, and last would be Derrick Henry. I want no part of Derrick Henry. If I had to tackle Derrick Henry or die, I would be dead. But what we'll miss most from Nate is how he had my back every day. Beef. This show ever started, or more often, finished. The most impressive athlete who just had a presence and a swagger where you looked at him and said, oh, that's the guy. That's the alpha dog in this locker room. It was David Njoku. And on the New York Jets, that player must be Quincy Inunua. Would you agree, Nate? Yeah, I totally agree. In rebuttal to your takes on Quincy and Nunwa, which are way off base. <laughs> yes! <laughs> it's obvious to me that Evan Silva hates Quincy, but the reality is he's a guy who can win Quincy. leagues. This is just a fact that you can't startle. Now just imagine his value once he's paired with Sam Darnold. Quincy and Unwa, Quincy and Unwa, Quincy and Unwa, Quincy and Unwa. At 6'2 to 25, he can really run. Attacking today, arrows blot out the sun. Number one receiver, not a guy you want to fade. Good said the Spartan King, we'll fight in the shade. Now it's obvious to me Evan Silva hates Quincy, but he's the type of guy who can go and help you Quincy. win leagues. Those 130 targets, that was me trying to spin things. So Evan, don't die on Tyreek Hill for not listening. Because anyone who listens as avidly as you say you do knows that Matt Kelly will support a hot take or two. And I know that Quincy looks a little fake to you, but what's he look like with Sam Darnold in 2018, boo? And then So, Tim, I will say this definitively to you because I know you listen to this show and I don't listen to your show. <laughs> yeah.
I see nothing wrong with mocking bad trade offers on social media. And I will continue to do it until I die. Until my heart stops beating, I will mock one-sided sham trade offers. That is my official response to at Tim NFL. Do you have anything to add, Nate? Yeah, I got something to add, Matt. What's up with the trade offer, Tim? That felt like attempted larceny. Although I'm not surprised it did come off very Chad Parsony. And what's up with UTH? Why did it part with Veach? I mean, he was the only one I wouldn't mute when he started to speak. And it's like I told Matt, I'm done with rap, even though I've got bars for weeks. I'm a father now. It's just not responsible for me to be a part of beefs. But you know Matt, he's a loose cannon who gets charged for these. Oh, and by the way, congrats on the 300th episode. I threw it on last night when it was hard to sleep. So which is it? Is it better to make metrics available for free to the public or to treat them as proprietary entities? Matthew Barry needs to make up his mind. And remember, this is coming from a person who thinks he invented the top 100 list, right? You can't rank your top 100 players in fantasy football without asking Matthew Barry's permission first. He invented the top 100 list. He'll tell you all about it. 2006, first top 100 list. Should have been the last top 100 list ever published on the internet. So Matthew Barry thinks what we're doing is shameful, but I would guess that Matthew Barry is not familiar with our work. He doesn't follow me. And based on his analysis, not someone who often seeks out advanced metrics. So if I were to guess, I would guess that Matthew Barry has never visited our terms glossary. He's never seen how we clearly allocate credit to individuals who first wrote about a particular way of measuring performance on a football field. We cite Jonathan Bales in our hand size section, and I don't even know why. We just did it because there was an interesting article written by Jonathan Bales about hand size. If you went to our terms glossary, it would become apparent very quickly because in the BMI section of the terms glossary, we cite original work from the 19th century. BMI, yeah. It's not to cover our ass against the self-righteous Twitter drones. It's because those citations are interesting. It informs our audience and it's just the right thing to do. Matt Berry needs to stay in the shallow end of the stats pool from now on. Do you have anything to add, Nate? Yeah, I got something to say, Matt. I'm a hired gun. That's on Matt Kelly's speed dial. He just points at one and they get fried like the green mile. But this time it's a ridiculous debate, man. Mr. Barfield jumped the gun. What, you couldn't wait, Graham? Get it? Wait, Graham? Ah, fuck it. I am great, man. Look at Sonic Truth's yards created after complaint. Damn. But just like Matt said, Twitter was armed to kill. The haters showed up with torches just like Charlottesville. And that includes Matthew Barry in that top 100 list that he patented, trademarked, and copyrighted his blah 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 look at how soft the internet can get a proprietary statistic nobody owns that shit but then a fight starts that's just one-sided to cyclops because graham had to take his tears public like eye drops and all the while player profiler remains a bright spot despite a group of assholes that are trying to turn its lights off it's not your inalienable right to send explicit, derogatory, or threatening electronic messages anonymously. It's just not. And if you're standing up for that fake right, who are you protecting? The trolls. Welcome to Jeff Miller's America. <laughs> I think we're going to look back in 20 years, Nate, completely perplexed. Say, wait a minute. 
We sat idly by watching others anonymously harassed creators of content fleeing electronic platforms. Wait, that was allowed? When Twitter goes away, it will not be replaced by another social media platform. It will be crowded out by private online communities that strip away Twitter's scary anonymity and raise the bar of social discourse. Again, go to patreon.com, search Podfather, and donate today. The bottom line is Jeff Miller is on the wrong side of history, standing up for the rights of anonymous trolls who are a plague and make everyone's experiences in a connected world worse. Do you have anything to add, Nate? Yeah, I got something to say, Matt. So I'm confused. Now Jeff Miller is choosing war after last week when Timmy became the human torch. Jeff, I know you told me you wanted to be ignored, but I reserve that right for your takes on sports. Imagine the irony of the avatar you have set, a private investigator, but Jeff needs his facts checked. So the next time you've got an opinion that lacks depth, why don't you make like Tom Selleck and stash it? Now before you get mad online again with something to say, here's a few of the facts that you forgot to convey. Yes, I did write for UTH way back in the day and Matt was fired from Rant Sports before he was made. I have seen every Harry Potter and I think they were great and Matt did lose a testicle in a fight with a snake but this is just the beginning Jeffrey so don't run away there's way more embarrassing shit I'm ready to say. I do have bad vision and need corrective lenses to drive. Matt did shit his pants once during a roller coaster ride. Admittedly I still have notes from my crush in fifth grade and Matt does still think it's cool to cruise on roller blades. I do go to bed with a pair of cotton socks on and all jokes aside matt has an std problem wait what he also won't admit it to the mass of his listeners but he did tell me once he fell in love with a stripper so that sort of history mixed with the small hands and feet plus his ibs issue that flares when he eats as for myself i'm a penny pinching porn fiend which scours the internet for nickel price porn scenes the dirtier the better i won't waste my time with boring give me midgets give me costumes and one with four sheep now jeff go back to that ergo computer chair and write more lame tweets for the few that'll actually care and Say what you will, but our laundry's been aired. Now there's nothing embarrassing left you can share. Oh, oh, you didn't think we would close out the best of the Sonic Truth podcast with either a sports take or a rant? No! I know the best part of the Sonic Truth podcast are the conversations that never touch sports. Okay, I got a question for you, Matt. Are you familiar with the eclipse that is going to take place uh, this coming Monday? I've heard about this. Yes, I've heard about this. I'm excited about it. Not really. It's going to be dark in the middle of the day for a little while. I mean, that's supposed to be a big deal. Really? Really? It's going to be dark in the middle of the day. It's dark every night. This isn't special. I love how people think this is some kind of special event. It's dark every night for at least... Eight hours, unless you live in Alaska. This isn't special. We're familiar with nighttime. We're familiar with darkness. It's just going to happen at a different hour than we're used to. Enough with the eclipse talk. I don't care. Well, here in central Oregon, they're saying that it's going to have the best visibility of anywhere in the country. Congratulations. What do you want, a cookie? I don't know what kind of cookies you got. There's 2.2 million people that are coming here for it. So traffic is jammed. There's no fuel. The grocery stores are out of most foods. Stop it. 
stop it. So the people in Southern Oregon are treating this eclipse like a potential apocalypse. The the National Guard is coming out to help with this thing. That's how many people there are going stop. to be. Stop it. Stop. Don't. That's not right. They can't be right. No, it's it's serious. I was reading this. Wait, people are traveling from all across the country to go to Oregon to watch it be dark for a little while. They are saying that Interstate 5, which is the freeway that runs north and south here on the West Coast, they're saying that it is going to be the worst traffic in the history of the country. These people are marks. All of them. All of them. If any of these individuals are in your fantasy league who are traveling to Oregon to watch this eclipse, if they own David Johnson, you should be offering them a trade because they will accept it. These people are suckers. Just had the talk with my wife about Mother's Day Mm. Mm -hmm. and received some pretty strong passive-aggressive pressure to knock it out of the park on Mother's Day. This came out of nowhere. I thought I had a great plan in place. Flowers were to be bought. I was going to buy some croissant at the French bakery to make a breakfast. I thought it was going to be great. But she ratcheted up the steaks today by reminding me that her last birthday party was underwhelming. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she confronted me by saying, do you even remember where the birthday was hosted? Because I was the one that arranged it. And I looked at my daughter. I said, can you, anything? Anything, Viv? Vivian? Anything? You got? Do you remember? She's like, was it at Nana's? And then I looked over at my wife and she was shaking her head. And I had absolutely nothing. I was a blank slate. Could not remember where the birthday party was. And I just shook my head. I said, okay, we'll we'll figure this out. So I had to huddle with my daughter and get it figured out. And I was like, okay, I know you've got some things in mind already. You keep talking to me about these things and that you have ready. You have them holstered. You have these ideas ready to fire. I'm all ears. Just tell me what you got. She's bought a notepad. She bought a notepad. And I was like, okay, great. Notepad, that's a good start. What else you got? What else you got? I, I picked some flowers, but they're dead. <laughs> Okay, fine. Okay, the flowers are a no-go. But what else? What else? What else? And then just blank slate. Just nothing. Just, that was it. That was all she had. So I thought she had a bunch of of great ideas in the inventory, and she did not. Uh, I was pretty much maxed out in terms of what I had planned, so now we have to go back to the drawing board because the stakes are high, my friend. The stakes are high this Mother's Day. I'm freaking out, man! You don't have a lot of time. I mean, here here's the thing. While we're admitting this, before we got on Skype, I was looking up Mother's Day gifts because I was planning on going with the flowers and doing the breakfast and then, you know, whatever she wanted to do for that day, we would go do. And I thought, look, I know Mother's Day and Father's Day tend to be a bit routine, right? You sort of have a routine. My mom, we always went to the Rose Garden in Oregon and walked it and did all this stuff because she was really into it. My wife, I've tried to make a routine or something she likes, and we did it annually. That's nice. Then you know what to do. Then everyone has an expectation. That's what I thought, but I've been waiting way too long. And today is Thursday. Tomorrow is Friday. Mother's Day is Sunday. You can't – Sunday is off. Sunday is off. You can't do anything Sunday unless you're going to rush out Sunday morning. So that leaves tomorrow and Saturday. Man, I don't have anything either, so don't feel bad. Oh, you're (laughs) – Nothing. (laughs) You're just – you just have one of those guns, and when it shoots, it just a, a flag with the word bang comes out. Huh. Yeah. That's all you have in terms of Mother's Day ammunition for me? Just bang. That's it. 
currently. I know I'm just trying. I'm trying to help you clear your conscience because I'm behind where you are. I haven't even talked to my daughter about what ideas she has. I know she made something at school. I thought that was the case. I imagined there was some project from school that we could incorporate into a larger gift. But I'm looking at the notepad right now, and, and it's nice. It's a beautiful notepad. But we're we're gonna have to do better than that. Right. Yeah. No. It's uh it's dangerous territory to come unprepared. And uh, fortunately for me, I haven't had the stakes raised on me. Sort of have that expectation of what we did last year. It's like Christmas for Dad gets underwear and socks. Sucks. I mean, I was blindsided. This was. Not something I expected. Now, my whole Saturday is going to be devoted to this project, which is fine. Totally fine. But I do have an objection. I mean, this idea that we have every three months something new that the calendar has thrust upon us. Some new set of gifts that must be formally presented. A Mother's Day. The birthday. The Christmas. The anniversary. It's hard, man. This calendar. I am a slave to this holiday calendar. Enough. Can't it just be extemporaneous? Can't it just be when I'm feeling in a loving mood, I do something nice or I buy something nice? Does it have to be, do I have to feel like I am pulling, I have the yoke of the calendar around my neck? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. And I've tried to add the the stability to this with my wife. It's too much. Well, look, you got, what, Valentine's Day in there? I forgot about Valentine's Day. Holy shit, that's five. You didn't even mention your anniversary. I mentioned anniversary. You're not listening. Uh, no. <laughs> you weren't listening. Okay. We'll go play it back. I'm going to find it and play it back. We'll play it back. I think you missed it. We're going to go ahead and play that clip back, but I did absolutely say anniversary. <laughs> the Christmas. The anniversary. <laughs> The Christmas, the anniversary, regardless, great pull with Valentine's Day. So that's five. That's almost once every two months we have to go to the drawing board with this package of gifts and events for a loved one. And it's just too much. It's way too much. Let it be spontaneous. How can it be spontaneous when it's every two months I need to think of something new? When do I have time to think of something spontaneous? Tell me this. I mean, it's too much. I agree. I've been bitching about the calendar for years. I am tired of it. We should hack that thing back to like three months. Oh. Let's have... No, three months. Every every six months, there should be a big deal event. But Mother's Day, please. Uh, yeah. Valentine's Day, get out of here. Have you ever tried this one? Have you ever said, look, you know when you have the holiday that's a his and her holidays, you know, and go, look, you don't have to do anything big for me on Father's Day. And I'm kind of hoping that you're understanding that what I'm saying is on Mother's Day, we're not going to do anything huge either. You know what I mean? Like, let's reel it back a little bit. I don't want to go out of my way on Valentine's Day. Yeah, that was a big deal when I was 15 or we first started dating. We know we've been married seven, eight years now. I don't remember how many years it is. She doesn't listen to this podcast. Anyways, the point is, I don't think, well, I mean, when I show her clips of it and stuff, me getting... you play clips for her i have played clips for her of this show Uh, there's some hilarious moments in this show that you just have to share with people of course of course i'm I'm glad that she has sampled some of your i guess failures Right, right well here's it's a small sample size we can't totally tell because most of the highlights of the show revolve around you making mistakes or you getting berated those seem to be the best moments 
there are some good ones. And uh, I think she's heard a majority of them. So she's well aware of the dynamic that takes place on this show. Well good. aware. Good. Yeah. She's yeah. like, did she do a ball check afterward? No, I mean, she'll look for them. You know, sometimes they're they're pulled up real high. You, know, you never know, never know what kind of day it is. They don't have that summer hang like they normally would. Summer hang, <laughs> dude! Get out of here! Stop it! Why do you always go a step beyond what is appropriate or what anyone wants to hear? God! No, the, the gross listeners know it. That is gross. We're transitioning towards the the June July weather. Get out of here! No one wants to visualize your seasonal ball hang. <laughs> seasonal, it's great. Uh, speaking of ball hang, I'm swimming fifty laps or so. I'm a great swimmer. Okay. And then I find out, oh, there's a sauna, too. So I'm in the sauna after the pool. I've done this Tabata class, swim some laps, just feel so tired and good. And the, the best thing you can do after that is nice sauna. So I'm sitting in the sauna, just blissful, really, blissful sauna experience. It would be really difficult to ruin my sauna experience, to ruin my whole exercise experience because it was just phenomenal. And then I realized why this JCC in particular is such a great value because <laughs> it's attached to the Jewish home for the elderly. Huh. Okay. All right. Which supplements the gym. Some smart people up there doing the bookkeeping. Why'd you have to do that? <laughs> Sorry. Come on. Why? Why? I mean, enough. Enough. All right. Sorry. Because in that moment, in walked an 80-year-old gentleman, and he didn't just walk up as most normal people would do, take a seat, lean back, and enjoy the sauna. No, no, no. No, 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 no. He walked in, and he was facing me. He was two feet away from me, and he was wearing a towel, and he just took the towel off. Just took it off, like right in front of me. I mean, he could have faced any direction, but he was facing directly at me. There was no one else in the sauna. And I just closed my eyes and I said, you know, this has been a great day so far. My body feels tremendous. I am in a happy place and this isn't happening right now. And I didn't just see what I just saw. Old shriveled up balls. <laughs> I mean, this guy. Aren't you not embarrassed at that age to show that thing and that it wasn't even a thing it was just a little stub of a thing and these shriveled little <laughs> raisiny balls i mean it was embarrassing i was embarrassed on his behalf <sighs> because he was so old so in, in general when you encounter people that are that old you just feel bad for them in general you're like oh i'm gonna be old like that someday if i make it that far hope i make it that old but then once i make it to be that old it's gonna be really inconvenient to be all wrinkled and <laughs> slow, but it's life, man. Sorry. And then to compound it with these little raisin balls and just putting them right in my <laughs> face. Cool. I have never had a close encounter with really old balls, and it wasn't good. No one ever should have a close encounter with old balls. And it got worse. He took his towel. Oh, God. And he started flossing between oh. his legs. Oh, yes. No, he did. He did do that because he had just showered 
And his way of drying off was to go into the sauna. But, of course, he can't get all the moisture off. He has to towel, especially in the, in the creases and crevices. Sure. And he's just flossing his taint right there. <laughs> and it's just horrifying. And you can close your eyes, but you know it's there. You know it's happening. It doesn't stop it from being horrifying. Closing your eyes isn't enough. Right. And then he made it even worse by trying to talk to me. (sighs) In a loud voice, like not an inside voice that you would use like in a business meeting when someone else is trying to talk, you know. Right. Did you get that PowerPoint deck ready? (laughs) Damn it. No. He just... The conversation you would have with someone who is across the yard. How you doing? (laughs) Did I see you swimming in the pool? Uh, and I just looked up at him, and I couldn't keep my eyes closed any longer. He was addressing me. I was the only one in the sauna. I had to open my eyes and come face to face with the balls. <laughs> and I looked up, of course, because eye contact is way better than ball contact. Right. Not contact, con- you know, like eye contact. Right. Not physically. Gotcha. Oh, God. That would be. <laughs> Woo! This was already a very difficult experience for me. I mean, it ruined my whole day. Right. I said a couple words to him, and then I just decided to get up and walk out of there. And it's just amazing how what was maybe the best workout I'd had in years was completely ruined by an elderly man who just had absolutely no self-awareness whatsoever. Don't be that guy. Everyone out there in Sonic Truth land, do not be chatty, floss-toweling old ball guy. (laughs) That's good. I think this was my favorite conversation of the year. question I always ask musicians and I've been driving at it, it's been a perpetual curiosity of mine for many years is how do you write a song? Like how does a song come to be? In particular a rock song. So I've started to learn the mechanics of writing rock songs and I think I've figured it out. So follow me for a minute. Going down a musical rabbit hole. And then once I explain how I think rock songs are created, the most popular ones anyway, you can explain the ideal process for creating a hip-hop song. What do you think of that? All right, let's do it. Now, this is just my opinion based on my observations. This is not an absolute truth. Creating a great popular rock song is counterintuitive to start. You break it out into four pieces. The first piece is the hook, which is the music that's playing during the chorus. You have the chorus lyrics. Then you have the rhythm music, and you have the verse lyrics. And the rhythm music is typically playing during the verse lyrics. And then you have the solo. We'll put that off to the side, because a solo is optional, can be non-existent, can be very long if you're familiar with bands like Fish, where it's just basically a short song and then a long solo. And then other bands have little to no solos. So put the solo off to the side. Think about the four pieces, the two written pieces and the two musical elements. Songs begin with a riff. The music that's playing during the chorus is typically the first piece that's created. That requires what I would call true artistic inspiration, an idea sparking in an artist's mind for a new way to string together musical notes, 
in a way that enraptures, where everyone in the band and the producers, they hear it and they go, oh, you're on to something. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, I like that. Tickling the, the sensors in my brain that pick up music. And the brain is wired in a way to love music because our minds are always looking for patterns. We're attracted to patterns. We want to see patterns and then identify what we believe is the next piece of the pattern. That's why we sing along to songs because we, oh, we recognize the pattern and we want to repeat it and that soothes our mind. So the hook is critical. Without the hook, the music that's playing during the chorus, you really don't have a song. What's interesting is once you have the hook, the musical element, the next piece that's written is typically the lyrics to the verse. And that is another artistic component, a purely artistic component that requires this flash of insight because that's poetry. That's the poetry element of the song. So that's why singer-songwriters are considered poets, like Bob Dylan, where his verses are sublime. They strike a different chord in your mind, and that place where you can think comprehensively tickles those sensors. So then once you have that, then you lay the rhythm music under the verse, and you can see the song starting to come together. The rhythm music under the verse is typically the easiest. Most professional musicians can put something like that together pretty quickly. Again, I am generalizing. There are certainly songs where the rhythm section is exceptionally difficult to execute and super creative. I understand that. I'm just talking generally. But here's where it gets very tricky. And here's the piece that makes or breaks a song. The hook brings a song to life, but the wrong chorus can put it off on the shelf. The chorus has to be perfect. The chorus lyrics are not what I would consider purely artistic. I believe they're much more mechanical. They're much more analytical because there is a very specific way to structure the wording of a chorus to get the syllables to flow perfectly, to get the words to flow in line with the riff in a way that tickles the brain so much that you want to hear that song over and over and over again. And this is where most musicians fail. The first three they've got down. They got their great riff. Then they had a poem all written and they lay that rhythm music down. And then when it comes to writing the chorus, they fail time and time and time again. And it's what keeps many bands unknown. It's the reason they don't break out is because they never learn the finer aspects of writing a chorus that will lead a song to get wide airplay, to become popular, not just on the radio, but on YouTube and all these other places. You have to get the syllables perfect and the cadence perfect. And the key is to stop worrying about the words. You can say everything you want to say in the verse. That's where you can do your poetry. The best bands don't worry so much about the words in the chorus. They just want the damn thing to sound right. That's all they care about. Many of the most popular songs you listen to the chorus, it's kind of gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. Have you ever heard a song by the band Train? Yeah, I think I've heard a couple of them. It's just stream of consciousness during the chorus. He's not saying anything. Van Halen is overrated. Tell me. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Did you fall for a shooting star? It's just he's moving from one thing to the next. All he cares about is the cadence and the syllables and the rhyming. I'm sure he doesn't think Van Halen's overrated like I think Deshaun Watson's overrated. It's just that Van Halen had the precise number of syllables and the inflection in the letters of the name Van Halen. He just chose Van Halen because it fit. And Van Halen just happens to be wildly overrated also.
but not as overrated as the band Train. But many singer-songwriters don't want to do that. They have a very specific vision for what they want a song to be, what they want to say, how they want to express themselves, and the idea they're just going to relegate the chorus lyrics to essentially a machine, a gibberish machine, to allow them to line up. Well, a lot of bands refuse to do that, and in that stubbornness, there's a lot of great songs that never get airplay, that you and I will never hear, and the only people that know of these songs and love these songs, because they're great songs, are the hardcore fans of that band, because it just never hooked in to the receptors in our brain, because they didn't lay out the words in the chorus very well. This is why songwriting duos are so popular. Why do you think the Rolling Stones were so good? It's because Mick Jagger and Keith Richards both had roles in the songwriting. One was a craftsman, great at the mechanics. One was an artist, great at the poetry. No better example than the Beatles. Most of the Beatles' hits were John and Paul, Paul and John. And whenever a professional musician is teaching an up-and-comer, the first assignment is go listen to early Beatles records. You want to make great songs? Go listen to Introduction to the Beatles, Meet the Beatles, Hard Day's Night. Go listen to those albums if you want to make great music. And it's not just rock and roll. It's everything. It's hip-hop. It's R&B. It's rock and roll. It's everything. The elements of popular music are embedded in those particular albums. And this took me a long time to figure out what I just told you. Talking to a lot of musicians and listening to a lot of musicians interviewed because inter musicians are so cagey about this songwriting process. They will not lay it out to you like I just laid it out to you. Because instead, they will hide behind this notion that, well, everyone's different and there is no singular process. There's no right or wrong way. A lot of songs get written in different ways and come together in different ways and have different inspirations and different mechanics behind them. That's not true. Most of the best songs are created using the step-by-step -step process that I just laid out. And that's how the Beatles wrote their music. And the key that unlocked my curiosity that eventually led me to figuring this out was a biography that I watched about Nirvana. And I learned that Kurt Cobain's favorite band was the Beatles. And this was like 20 years ago. And that blew my mind because I love Nirvana. I thought, the Beatles? What? No way. I know Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain loves Thelonious Monster. Kurt Cobain's aesthetic is Thelonious Monster. He's channeling Bob Forrest. There's no way his favorite band was the Beatles. And then you go to YouTube and you pull up the video In Bloom by Nirvana. And they're channeling the Beatles. And a musician sat down and told me something. You know Nirvana is just the Beatles, right? And I said that that can't be true. That they don't sound anything alike. He's like, they don't sound anything alike? And he looked indignant. He said, Kirk Cobain was mimicking Paul McCartney the whole time. And I think this, is, this can't be right. And he said, absolutely. Look at the way the chords are structured. Look at the way the songs are structured. All Nirvana is... All Nirvana songs are are highly distorted versions of Beatles songs. That if you cleaned up the guitar riffs and the distortion and the grunge and you put them in black suits, they would be the Beatles. And that blew my fucking mind, which led me on this journey to figuring this out. It's amazing. So how do you write hip-hop songs? It's not so different from kind of how you explained it, but... A lot of times with hip-hop, a lot of the rappers don't make their own instrumentals. Lots of guys don't because rapping 
and making beats are two vastly different things, and they're both really difficult. I mean, on the other side, you look at rock artists. Some of those guys, the drummer may or may not have the talent to help create the music. He plays the drums. He might be able to write some lyrics, but writing good lyrics is hard, too. So in hip-hop, and with any artist, the people that I think are really the best are the ones that in their head go, okay, I thought of a topic. This is what I'd love to write about, you know, whether it's it's something poverty-related or something going on in their life or whatever it is. And in their mind, they can picture what they want it to sound like, and they can construct that then they write to that what happens more times than not though is guys will like for me i'll start making some drums i'll figure out kind of what i want it to be like you know and then from there i'll start building around it and once i have basically the bare bones the rhythm like you said from there i'll add layers for a chorus and when you program it you know like the programs we use it's not like rock where in hip-hop it's like 16 bars then there's a little something that comes in just before the hook the chorus then you bring in a few more sounds for the chorus then you drop those same sounds back out and so it's your rhythm is always there right right the chorus instrumentals over the top of it oh that's interesting the chorus lyric is that really the final piece of the puzzle yeah you know like the the chorus like you said it's the most important you know you want it to be the catchiest you also want the instrumental itself to add some flavor you know but the voice is an instrument too and that's something that people don't often talk about the way you use it on the chorus you use it like an instrument so sometimes less is more you know if you get a singer on there you don't need to add you know symphonic sounds you don't need to add synthesizers to it there's just little changes and a voice can do a lot for it but yeah the chorus is the big one and the chorus kind of ties together the verses it's like what is the thesis of what this song is about you know what's the general idea sum it up in the chorus do it a catchy way that makes people want to listen to the music and then yeah in the verse you're just telling you're telling whatever you want to tell that's your opportunity to be detailed to say what you want set it up and you know you have three verses typically and you can be very improvisational in the verses yeah there's a lot of room for error in the verses you can have a hit song with lots of different versions of the verse typically the chorus will make or break the song so a great example two episodes ago on the mind of mansion show we started the show with a song from phil collins take me home and in that chorus he doesn't say take me home he says take take me home added the extra take for no reason because he needed the syllables to line up exactly that's why it's take take me home you start to listen for that in these songs which i do now and i'm like oh that motherfucker the little tricks that you play in the chorus to get everything to line up just perfectly and that was phil collins genius what the fuck is susu studio it doesn't matter (laughs) it sounds good No Jacket Required is one of the biggest hit records ever. It was one of the dominant selling records in the 80s. Susu Studio and No Jacket Required. And it's nonsense. And it doesn't matter. Because it's all about the craftsmanship of that chorus making or breaking songs. And that's all Phil Collins did was make hit after hit after hit with that method. Well, you see it so frequently in hip hop. I mean, honestly, most of the radio music is just absolute crap. You know, there's not a lot of guys that are writing anything that's worth a shit anymore. 
I, I like and dislike Macklemore. You know, obviously newer guy on the scene, but he actually writes some good stuff. A lot of times the stuff that you hear on the radio, and this can go for a lot of bands. You know how if you're a fan of a band, you listen to their radio music and you're like, God, why do they always play this crap on the radio? They, right. Their whole album is loaded with way better music. So people that don't listen to these artists, listen to the radio music and go, oh, this guy's terrible. You know, this song's garbage. But yeah, to your point, you write a good chorus and it doesn't, it really doesn't matter what you say in the verse. There's so many artists I listen to that are known for just using multi-syllable rhyming. If you go listen to Eminem, in fact, a lot of people, and I bet tons and tons of listeners on here are unaware that Eminem had an album before he ever had any of the albums with Dr. Dre, and it's called Infinite, and it's about 10 songs, and he just goes off multi-syllable rhyming. It doesn't make any damn sense at all, not one word of it, but it <laughs> sounds amazing, and it's like... <laughs> 1992 i swear to god go look it up you can find it on youtube the album is called infinite the single's called infinite and it's incredible because he just makes it sound great but he's not saying anything anything at all the song that has the most views on youtube that i've found in my browsing of youtube mostly browsing youtube to find songs that my daughter likes song by one republic called counting stars 1.9 billion views. Mm -hmm. 1.9 billion views. Go read the lyrics to One Republic Counting Stars. It's just a bunch of nothing. And my favorite part is they do the Phil Collins trick of lately I've been I've been losing sleep. Wait, there's an extra I've been in there. Oh, oh, little Phil Collins trickery. Motherfuckers, (laughs) 1.9 billion views. They're tickling the brain with that shit. They're getting paid off that. They're making you hit play again and again and again. It's while these songs get addictive. It's striking the right wavelength in the brain. Somebody's got an ear for it, though. You know, like, and, and oftentimes, too. With- oh, those people are geniuses. Those people are geniuses. Absolutely. Another great story is, so Pearl Jam does Pearl Jam 10, right? They know it's a great record because it was the right guys coming together at the right time. And they knew it was going to be a smash record. They knew it. They knew it. The guys knew it as they were recording it. But here's the funny part. They didn't know which songs would be the hits. Pearl Jam thought the two biggest hits from 10 would be Alive and Once. They didn't think Jeremy was radio worthy. (laughs) They didn't write Even Flow for a wide audience. Even Flow is about homelessness. Those were not written to be mainstream songs, yet the two biggest hits from 10 by far were Even Flow and Jeremy. Jeremy is so catchy, though. I remember when I was way younger listening to that song and the cadence of it, and the way the voice is an instrument is a perfect example in that song. Man, and then the line about the lion mashing up its teeth and chewing up the recess lady's breast or something like that. I don't know. Like That album tricked a lot of people. That album even tricked the producers. They did not think that songs with those topics with that content would be considered mainstream, but they underestimated even the producers who knew, okay, grunge is happening. Even they totally underestimated the power of those records. Same thing with the Nevermind record. They thought in Bloom, the song I talked about, they thought that would be the initial radio book. No, Smells Like Teen Spirit was unexpected. 
they ended up releasing the songs that the band thought would be the hits as the fourth, fifth, and sixth songs off those records. It's amazing. You just don't know all the time. But then once the producers start to better understand the genre and how it's received, then all of a sudden these guys become just masters. They can listen to an album and go, okay, hit, 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 and here's how we'll structure it. And then someone will say, wait, what? Wait, what? That, that was a hit? No, no way. No way. There's even some famous examples of record companies and producers totally missing the boat on songs and making them B-sides and then those songs becoming the biggest hits. So even Led Zeppelin has a song like that. There's a Led Zeppelin song called Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? that never made it on any of their albums. And anyone that knows Led Zeppelin knows Hey, Hey, What Can I Do is one of their best songs. And the fact that that was a B-side is mind-blowing in retrospect. You know, and a lot of these you know, record labels and producers now, they use focus groups. So they'll bring in you know, right. random listeners to listen to this music and give you feedback on it. And they figure out, hey, what's the most likely to be a hit amongst the universal group of people? I was going to say, though, about the song, Jeremy, when you were talking about what, um, God, what were you? Now I'm just totally losing it here. The artist you were talking about that kept doubling up their words. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. God, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. Genius. Pop music genius. The word class in that chorus, like how elongated it was. I mean, it could have been right. the same thing. Right, yeah, yeah. Right? The way you elongate a word to basically <laughs> a word becomes a full sentence. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But I'll say it doesn't get any better than when two great musicians who are also great writers both get together. I mean, that's the secret of the Beatles. As great as George Harrison was, and you have whatever thoughts you have about Ringo Starr, it was all about Lennon and McCartney, McCartney and Lennon. The fact that you would have two geniuses coming together. in one band has rarely been seen at that kind of level. But as they aged, with every album you can see on their discography, they, as the two drift apart, you can see the songs drifting apart. So when you have a song credited to Lennon and McCartney, with every passing album, it's easier and easier to identify the song that Paul was predominantly responsible for versus John was predominantly responsible for because their taste started changing. They started going off in different directions. It used to be they were just living together and playing music all day, and they started to live separate lives and write different types of songs, and they weren't meshing like they were before. So anyone that was you know, regretting, heartbroken about the Beatles breaking up, well, it was inevitable. They had been breaking up for years before the official breakup. But they came together near the end for a song called Day in the Life, which helps to illuminate how songs are created because Day in the Life is two completely separate songs. And John was working on the song and he just didn't have a verse for it. He had this catchy hook, but that was all he had. He's like, I got this hook. I got this riff. I don't really have a lot else. And John was like, really? Because I wrote this song with some very train-esque stream of consciousness lyrics and a nice little rhythm section. Sounds great, but I don't have any way to tie it together. And John's like, well, I have this piece. And Day in the Life is the quintessential example of a song being written in pieces and then being put together by two guys that really were not writing songs together any longer. 
Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Found my way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I noticed I was late. Found my coat and grabbed my hat. So go listen to that song and you'll hear exactly what I'm talking about. And I love the fact that we have yet to talk football. I mean, it makes me so happy because the feedback we get on social media is oh, yeah. the most positive when we spend extra time away from football. I love karaoke. You knew that about me. No, that's this isn't this surprisingly has never come up. No, but I know the- we haven't talked about it, but you know me as a guy that of course would love karaoke. No, I can see that. You definitely fall under the classification of somebody that would be into karaoke. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Yes, right. You're that guy. But I'm beyond that guy. I'm beyond just the guy that goes up and grabs the microphone. I'm also the guy that grabs the microphone halfway through the song when someone's struggling. (laughs) Why, like you're going to get up there and kill it? No, I go up there and I grab the other microphone. I put my arm around the person and I get them through it. All right. I thought you meant like shove them off stage and try and steal the moment. Oh, I do that too. Uh, All the different variations of look at me karaoke guy. That's Matt Kelly. Yeah, I told you so radio and look at me karaoke guy. I took it to another level last night, though. So we had a couple couples we met up with at a friend of Vivian's house. So my daughter Vivian, she has a a bunch of friends and we're friends with all their all the parents. And she insisted that we bring all the karaoke equipment with us to the party. And I said, that's fine. That's fine. We'll bring it. I have no problem with that. So. The dad sees me showing up with these speakers and the console, and he's just like, and he just rolls his eyes because with me, it's always something. You know, I never just show up with the family. There's always some extravagance. There's always some histrionics involved with, with us arriving. We can't just arrive like a normal family. That's just not how we do it. That's not how the Kellys roll. It's good. So he requests Piano Man. Because he and his daughters know Piano Man, and they're singing Piano Man. It's going great, but of course, people get shy, they struggle, and I happen to find myself holding one of the microphones halfway through the song. And then I took it to a level that no one was ready for. Did you have a set of big sunglasses with you? In one hand, I held the microphone. And in my left hand, I reached into my pocket Do it. and pulled out a harmonica. Oh, my God. What in the world? And everyone in the room looked over at me and said, oh, here we go. Here we go. Oh, my gosh. Matt Kelly being that guy again. Oh, my gosh. A harmonica. Had to steal the thunder from the song that the other family was supposed to be starring in. Of course. Of course. I could not allow the other family to kill it on Piano Man. I had to jump in there and bring out a harmonica that I had premeditatedly stashed in my pocket for that particular moment. It's unbelievable. I'm that dad. I'm that dad. I'm the dad that all the other dads hate. They're just rolling their eyes going, Matt Kelly brought a fucking harmonica? What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is this guy, man? Where did 
this guy come from, man? Who the fuck brings a harmonica? He had it in his pocket the whole time? Can't one-up that. He didn't even know we were going to request Piano Man. Uh, this fucking guy's diabolical. <laughs> it's typical. You were just running the odds. You knew somebody was going to. Uh, you're actually pretty good on that thing. <laughs> it's just it's a variation of the same melody on the harmonica, and it always works. It's going to another level. Kapow! Kapow. Eat shit, other dads. And and also, also, I think you've lost credibility at the same time. Gained it and lost. A harmonica is a great way to gain credibility and lose it in the identical moment. Right. That so, was me just unzipping my pants and throwing my penis down on the karaoke console. Huh. And then people are just like, eh, yeah, all right. That's all right. Hey, congratulations, Matt Kelly. You won karaoke. Great job. I don't do karaoke. That is definitely not my thing. What do you want, a medal? What, do you get a trophy for this? Did you uh, did you solo act after that, or was that like your one your one moment? I had my daughter bring in a Yamaha piano, <laughs> and we did Super Tramp Take the Long Way Home. That's great. Uh, and just dominated the room, and no one could do karaoke after that. It's fucking Kelly's at it again. <laughs> and then you can see someone realizing, oh, wait, they brought their own karaoke equipment here. This wasn't the host family's karaoke equipment. The Kellys brought this just so they could one-up everybody. Typical. Typical. That's great. Nice harmonica, asshole. <laughs> well, I'm glad. It sounds like you had a good weekend. Oh, I love it. Nothing gives me more pleasure than just establishing my alpha dad status. That's a weird way to establish any alpha status. I got to be honest with you. It didn't seem like the typical way to go about it. <laughs> right? Right? I mean. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. The wives are entranced by it. The children love it. The dads hate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Exactly. Uh, that guy at the dinner party. That's good stuff. How about you? How was your weekend? Oh, man. You know, I'm, I'm starting to realize that uh, I'm mortal, Matt. All these years, thought I wasn't, and I'm realizing more and more frequently that I am. Uh, the other day, I was at a buddy's house. He had a barbecue. Told him I'd stop by for a little bit. Brought my daughter. He's a survivalist. He's into you know renewable energy and and using rainwater for rain barrels to collect it. And you know, a gardener and botanist, and has a, a tiny house. So tiny house. Yeah, he has a tiny house. Are you familiar with a tiny house? It's a very small house. Okay. I mean, congratulations. You have a small house. Right. 300 square feet. Little 300 square feet? Something like that. It's the whole house? The whole tiny house. So that's not even the best part. So he, he's been, you know, he's been producing his own honey over there forever. He's been farming it. Oh, my God. So he's another that guy. Oh, yeah. Is he single? Yes, he's single. So he's the that guy bachelor. If I'm the that guy <laughs> oh my God. married father, he's the that guy bachelor that we all hate. The guy that's making his own fucking honey. He goes, he goes, he goes, Nate, bring you and your daughter and let's go over there and let's check out the beehive. And, and by the way, it's beehives. Okay, so there's three beehives over there. And there are bees, thousands of bees running back and forth between these hives and wherever they're going out to the flowers and the plants and doing their thing. And they have like their own their own airspace. As long as you're not in it, you're safe. So they say. So, so they say. It's a little four by four tarp. Not very big. So 
I'm standing as far back as he is, which is the identical distance of my daughter. And we're looking at these bees and it's mesmerizing. There's thousands of bees. They're flying in and out and they're doing their thing. And my daughter's mind is blown because she's never been this close to bees in a hive. And all of a sudden, as he's kind of telling me that these bees, you know, are a little rowdy because they've got a new queen and it's a new hive and that, you know, they're not really settled in yet. I'm looking at these bees flying around and one bee, I, I swear, I pick it out of the crowd and it just puts on the brakes makes a hard right turn and comes directly at me. You know, and I, I kind of try and turn away from it. It lands on the top of my head. And like anybody else in this world, I decide I'm going to I'm gonna swat at this thing. I'm going to brush it off. You know, like about the same time that I do it, my buddy who bee keeps with, you know, no bee suit on, no gloves, no nothing. He's like, don't swing at it. And I swing at it and try and whack it off the top of my head. But it's too late. It's already stung me in the top of the head. Now, I don't know when the last time you were stung was. But it was a very uncomfortable feeling. Have you been stung? I have been stung. I was stung last year. Had a couple buddies out to the house. And we went to one of those adventure parks. Those ropes courses with the rope ladder and... Zipline? Zipline. Whole thing. And for some reason, we decide we're just going to start with the double black diamond. No experience whatsoever. I'm the only one that's a climber, but this is a different skill set altogether. And we're struggling just to get up the initial rope ladder to the first platform. And there's like 35 platforms with one challenge after another where you have to use all of your muscles to balance and pull and swing from one rope to the next onto a moving log. It's very difficult. And to get from one platform to the next, if you don't use the right technique, you end up with all these rope burns. By the time we made it to platform five, I was scraped and scratched and bleeding, bruised. And two of my friends at that point just said, listen, we're out. And we had to call. It was embarrassing. We had to call. <laughs> for someone to come rappel up the tree to rescue us so we held up the entire course for 15 minutes as a rescue team came to bring down my two friends but myself and another friend decided we would continue on to the first exit station and it was excruciating i mean it was one of the worst experiences of my life i didn't break a bone i didn't tear a ligament so because i wasn't severely injured i can't say it was the worst experience of my life but outside of something truly awful happening in my life that was the worst experience that i've ever been a part of and we're finally at the end going to the last challenge it's a zip line to the first way out and halfway through the zip line i can see in my periphery a giant wasp nest and a wasp just comes out and just right right in the face right in the face right in the face the right side of my head is swelling up. I'm finally to the platform. I exit. I'm putting my arms around my friends for support as we make it out. Oh and it was truly miserable. And then we get to the exit and they have the picture that we had taken at the beginning fully developed and framed. So they hand us this picture where the four of us are thumbs up, making funny faces. It looks like we're about to have such a good time. And then we look at each other leaving and so good. 
were just these miserable, broken individuals. And this was supposed to be the signature event of the weekend with my friends. This was me showing them a good time. <laughs> That's good. It doesn't sound like it ended that way. And we've never been so miserable. Okay, you've waited long enough. Here are the food takes. My disposition is, oh, I'm all about fun. I'm ready to have fun. I expect fun. And when fun doesn't happen, I'm disappointed. So the BOSU ball was a disappointment. These items that the trainers bring out, they're all some form of torture. They're all torture devices in some way. So my wife said, well, you need to eat bananas to help you recover. Is that a thing? Eating bananas to recover? Bananas are fine. I don't eat a lot of bananas, but yes, I think people do believe that bananas are good post-workout. I thought you would be someone who ate a lot of bananas. When I envision <sighs> Nate Liss, I just envision you eating bananas. I don't uh, I don't eat very many bananas. When I do, I put them into like smoothies and shakes and stuff like that. I don't I don't eat a lot of bananas and I don't know what the implication of me eating a lot of bananas is. Like for a health reason or because bananas are clearly a phallic-shaped fruit? I want to know. In general, your character on this show is ape-like, is it not? I mean, I guess. Yes, I would say I'm, I perhaps could be ape-like. You are the show's proto-human, and I think of proto-humans as eating more bananas than the average human. Therefore, Nate List would, by definition, eat more bananas. So I like bananas. I try to eat multiple bananas per day. They give you energy. They're healthy. They have this the natural vitamins. How do you open a banana? Um, well, you know, it depends if it won't just break at the, at the stem at the top. Okay. Sometimes I'll take a knife and make a little slit. It's a big mistake. If you're okay. starting at the stem at the top, you're already making an, an enormous mistake. Giant blunder. You're about to correct something that I've been doing for 20 years. What you've been doing for 20 years has been wrong. It's been dead wrong. It's been suboptimal. <gasps> you do not open a banana from the top. You open it from the bottom. That's the mansion lifestyle tip of the day. Turn that banana, what you think of as upside down, and you just put your fingernail under the bottom of the banana and you push it up and it pops right off like a cap. And you can just easily peel the banana down, three, four peels. And the beauty is the top of the banana is never squished. You don't lose banana at the top. The top remains intact and the bottom remains fully intact. You're wasting banana when you open it by the stem, and you're eating mealy banana at the top. So you start Whoa. off the experience Whoa. with mealy banana. Why would you want to start with mealy banana when you can start the experience off with a delicious, firm banana? And that's what you get when you start from the bottom. You're not paying attention to what I said, because when you slit the top of a banana with a knife, that is the ultimate attempt to not squish the banana. That is like... Well, that's if you have a knife. I'm saying you just grab a banana off the shelf. You want to eat it immediately. You don't have time to go fetch a knife. You want to open it the right way. Most people open it by gripping the stem, and that is an egregious blunder. You're disrespecting the banana when you open it from the top, in quotes. You open it from the bottom. Okay, well, first off, I'm going to continue to open it from the top. Put that stem down. Face the stem down. It's unorthodox. It feels unorthodox at first, but once you do it a few times, it feels natural. It feels like the way. You want to know how I know this is the right way to eat a banana? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
The most prolific banana consumers who do not have access to knives in the wild, primates open bananas from the bottom. They do it the right way because they respect the banana. Just because it's been done one way for a long time, Matt, doesn't make it the right way. A long time? A long time? Do you know how long primates have been around? I mean, you should know. <laughs> but what does that even mean? Well, yeah, the origin of us, I don't know exactly when we <laughs> became. We say, like, oh, throw a number at it. Millions of years. I guess. Millions. I guess. Millions of years, bananas have been around. They've been opened the correct way until humans came along and started smushing the top of bananas in a disrespectful fashion. Anytime I see someone opening a banana on the stem end, I'm embarrassed for that person. I'm embarrassed for that person. I'm embarrassed for Mother Nature that mm -hmm. somehow evolution has led us astray. I'm correcting the mistake. I'm fixing the glitch. There's been a banana glitch. I'm fixing the glitch. Well, I'm not going to change what I'm doing, but here's a question. If you open a banana, regardless of what end you open it from, I open it from my end, you open it from yours, we both have a banana. If there's a brown spot on that banana, what do you do? I generally eat the brown. Oh, God. Oh, God. I just power through it. Isn't that gross? It's not as good. No, it's a bruise, but I generally power through it. But Stop. here's the exception. When I'm preparing a banana for my daughter... I will cut off the bruise. I, it's like inherently, you know, that bruise is gross. It's, it's easy with the banana to just break off the second, you know, like eat to it, break it off, throw it away and continue eating. You don't have to. I think that's how you know I'm a good father, because I would do for my daughter what I would not do for myself in the consumption of a banana. No, it, I, it sounds like you're a great father. I mean, you're not letting her eat. <laughs> oh, I'm a man. oh, I'm great. I'm, I'm, I'm incredible. That's, that's a fantastic job on your part, but you got to look out for you. You know, you're going to all these classes, doing this workout stuff. I just don't often have access to a paring knife. You seem to be surrounded. You've surrounded yourself in your life with paring knives. I don't have that. I don't have easy access to paring knives. I'm never less than two feet away from some sort of knife to cut something. I've always got one around. I'm always ready. I'm handy. I'm prepared. Was that a big moment for you when you learned how to create a knife-like blade from a rock? It took us a long time. I mean, I had to smash it with other rocks. We broke a lot of rocks trying to get there, but, you know, over time, we got there. <laughs> it's quite the conflict that I've created this picture of you, this proto-human illustration of you, yet you're not eating a banana the right way. So there's an evolutionary conflict at work there. I'm not sure how, how I resolve that. There's a biological conflict there. I'm not sure how I resolve it. People want us to talk about literally anything other than football because they have... 65,000 fantasy football podcasts to get through, and this is a detour from the droning football talk, and they love it. So, okay, with, with that being said, tell me tell me about this, this dinner with the family. No, you have to go, Nate. You have to go. We have to get going with this. We have to cut this show short. We have to shortchange the audience in the process because Nate Liss has somewhere to be. You have too many responsibilities, and this show, as we know, is low on your priority list. Look, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's low on my priority list. What I'm saying is, look, I trust you, Matt. There's no way lightning won't strike twice. You wouldn't do this to me twice after I've begged you twice. No, I'm not going to go on some elongated recipe story going through every meticulous detail of cooking popcorn or in this case, grilling salmon. But what I will tell you 
is you can make your life a hell of a lot easier if you put some material between fish and the grilling surface. This is a pro tip for everyone at home. Never grill fish directly on the flame. Why? Because we have to scrape the fish parts off the grill. Do you really think that's the way to go? No, it's not the way to go. It's not clean, it's not sanitary, and it doesn't taste as good. So if you're going to grill salmon, put down a layer of tinfoil and then coat that tinfoil with oil, and you can have the great flavor and consistency of grilled salmon without ruining the protein fibers and potentially ruining your grill. Now, you want to take it a step higher? Now, do you want to take it to the next level? <laughs> Go to Whole Foods and purchase a couple cedar planks. So you purchase cedar planks from Whole Foods, and you soak those cedar planks for about two to three hours, get them nice and wet and heavy, and then you put them on the grill surface. You put the salmon on top, cover the grill, and it creates this cedar aroma steam inside the grill. So it adds a little extra cedar flavor to the fish. It's wonderful. That's the way to go. I was at my father-in-law's house, and he was about to throw the fish directly on the flame, and I said, Ah, what are you doing? <laughs> Got out some tinfoil. Boom. His mind blown. Okay, so... That wasn't necessarily a recipe per se. There's a cooking pro tip. I don't have recipes for the audience every week, but they loved the tips that I had for them about popcorn popping. So I thought, why not fish grilling? It was a nice, it was a nice change to the episode. It, once again, it didn't, it didn't help with our overall length of show and timeline that I'm trying to stay on. But we're going healthier now because show me the length again of the show with your hand gesture. About this much, about this wide. Yeah, that's about right. You got it about right. Seems about right. Tell me when. For anyone that's masturbating at home. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Do you need like the red wagon popper box? You know, the, the, the giant. <laughs> I don't know what that thing is. No. Okay, go on. No, you just need a kettle. Just a kettle to put on the stove. And first and foremost, you go buy some popcorn kernels. I go to a local farm that sells fresh organic popcorn kernels because wow. I live in Connecticut and we're surrounded by these niche farms and they're all great. You have the farm share package. You pick up your bushel of vegetables and have them throw some fresh popcorn kernels in to go. You can just buy a container of popcorn kernels. You don't have to buy the high-end variety, but I'm Matt Kelly, and that's why I'm me. <laughs> All right. So you set your oven to high to take out any kettle where you would boil water, and you cover the bottom of the pot with a thin film of canola oil or vegetable oil, and then you add a tablespoon of butter on top, and you put the heat on high, and you let it get very hot. Once it starts crackling, you take a single kernel, Nate, a single kernel, and you drop a single kernel into this buttery oil, and you wait until that single kernel pops, take it out, put it in your mouth, delicious. At that point, you pour a whole cup of your unpopped kernels into the kettle. Cover the kettle, shake the kettle up a little bit, and let the magic happen. You'll start to hear the popping. That's good. You want popping, lots of popping. Once the popping starts to happen in earnest inside the kettle, you give it a little shake. Another minute goes by, give it another shake. As soon as you start to hear the popcorn popping slow down, take it off the heat. It's okay. You don't need to pop every fucking kernel. Oh, my God. 
You can leave some kernels for Elijah. It's fine. Open the lid to the kettle, and what you need to get is a Flavacol shaker. Flavacol. It's that special yellow salt that they have at the movie theater. Are you familiar with the yellow salt? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with any of this process. Flavacol is a cheese-infused salt that they use at the movie theater. You can buy it on Amazon. Buy a quart of Flavacol, put it in a shaker. Then you give a couple shakes, the top layer of your popcorn. And here's the secret. This is important. I'm dying to know. You need a garlic mill. A garlic mill is like a black pepper grinder, only for garlic. It's filled with minced garlic. And you grind garlic, not into garlic powder. You don't want to use garlic powder. If you use a garlic mill that's grinding minced garlic, it will be a consistency that's between garlic powder and minced garlic. And you give it a few turns and cover the top layer of the popcorn, the sprinkling of your garlic. Then you turn it over, you give it a shake, and you do that one more time with more Flavacol, more garlic. Put the cover back on, give it another good, rigorous shake, and you're done. You have movie, theater, popcorn for your family, and if you're a dad, you'll be a fucking hero. I don't... Mm. I don't even know what to do with that. Wow, that was bad. <laughs> Did something die in your throat? No, I just had to clear my throat. I just wow. I didn't know what to do. I was sitting here so long salivating, thinking about how I could figure out how to make popcorn the longest way humanly possible. Oh, here's the upside. It takes less time to make the popcorn than it took me explaining it. I imagine so. That was that was certainly the drawn-out version. But that's the Matt Kelly version. People are going to appreciate that. It's, it's also a cooking show now. Well, you told me before we started that you needed to rush this episode. No, I, you know, and I thought... And you wanted me to be efficient. And you need to know your teammates. Because that, for me, was a cue to go as slow as possible and tell the most long-winded story I have in my arsenal. I imagine that there's something slower in that arsenal, but that was literally one of the slowest. I didn't even know that there was a way to describe making popcorn in such a way, but you certainly broke it down. It's when you said to do things numerous times, the added effect of redundancy really slowed it down. Yeah, I I wanted to hit the gas pedal, but thanks. Thanks for coasting for me. We're only four and a half hours in, and you've made it. You've made it to the end. The best take of them all. The ultimate Sonic Truth experience starts and ends with Nate Liss fighting a Wolverine. Can I tell you about a running back who in his freshman year, the same year that Saquon Barkley had his freshman year in the same conference as Saquon Barkley outproduced him no. in 2015. Who is this person? My man, Shannon Brooks, Minnesota Golden Gophers. He had a phenomenal freshman year. Is it the Golden Gophers or just the Gophers? Yeah, Golden Gophers. I don't think it's the Golden Gophers. It's absolutely the Golden Gophers. We're gonna put. Isn't it the Minnesota Gophers? No, it's the. You can you can go for look it up. It's Minnesota Golden Gophers, baby, all day. Oh my God! It is the Golden Gophers. What a stupid name that is. All day, baby. It's like WalterFootball.com. Yeah, it's Walter Football's alma mater. It's a very arrogant name. Could have been the Silver Gophers, Bronze. Could have just been a Gopher. Golden Gophers, baby. Golden gopher. Well, a gopher by itself, though, is not <laughs> imposing. 
And no one looks at a gopher and goes, oh, we're, we're fucked today. Yeah, but nobody looks at a golden gopher. The Michigan State Spartans, right? When the Spartans yeah. show up, you're like, oh, damn it. I guess we're going to lose. A wolverine? You cannot fuck with a wolverine. A wolverine will kill you. doesn't matter if you're an elephant, a lion. Wolverine, if it doesn't kill you, it's going to go down trying to claw your eyes out. I don't know what's going on here. Wolverines instill fear. Spartans instill fear. Gophers do not. I don't care if they're gold, silver. I don't care. It's a stupid mascot. Well, I'm not afraid of Wolverines while we're being totally serious here. You are not afraid of Wolverines? No, dude. Put me in a small cage with a Wolverine and see what happens. See who walks out alive. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Contact the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com, or better yet, tweet us at Roto Underworld, at Sonic Truth Pod, at An Outraged Jew, at <laughs> Fantasy underscore Mansion. A lot of ads. Send Nate Liss Wolverine GIFs. Set the record straight <laughs> on Wolverines. He has no idea what the hell he's talking about. It's almost like Nate Liss went to work for Walter Football. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you this. You buy me a one-way ticket. You would be signing up for a world of hurt. Put me in a cage with a Wolverine and I'll send that piece of shit back to hell where it came from. No problem. No problem. I will tear it in half over the top of my head as I do one loud battle cry and I snap its spine over my knee. You are a fool. Yeah. You know what? That Wolverine's a fool for getting in that cage with me. Gnaw right through the side of its neck. So anyways, let's talk about Shannon Brooks for a minute. Wait, you really have no idea. What is going on? I've seen a Wolverine, all right? My Uncle Tommy was killed by a Wolverine, Nate. How, how many years ago did he die, Matt? I don't remember. I was lying. Okay. He was, too, because there's no fucking way that a Wolverine could kill a man that was standing up. There's no way. It's too You're so full of shit. Please talk about the running back from the Minnesota team. All right. That's fine. Anybody that's got a Wolverine, send him my way. All right. You're out of your element talking about wild animals. I, you know, I used to catch rodents. Can you stop it? Just stop it. Okay. No, I didn't. I don't want to put that out there. I don't No, I don't want to associate myself. I. What's wrong with you? Uh, Usually I'm fine us wandering away from football, but not right now. This is just bad radio. You know, you think that popcorn thing was, but let's, all right, let me get back to this. You derailed me. You're being very bad at radio right now.
because I got a hold of Alshon Jeffrey's birth certificate, and his middle name is Game Time Decision. 